Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 86, Beowulf. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read, determine whether or not it's worthy of its reputation, or in other words, whether or not it is required reading. As always, I'm Tom Paneris, and joining me on the uh, Viking ship sailing to save the Danes from the wrath of Grendel is my wonderful co-host, the fierce warrior known as Stella. How are you? Okay, I feel like I could be the person who mourns you at the very end and is your stead if you're Beowulf, you know, and is your steadfast companion and goes through the funeral you might, you might rites off. and everything. Yeah, but also is fear-mongering because even though he just died and his body is not even cold yet. He's like, well, now the tribes are going to be upset again. Yeah, now we're all screwed. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think you'd be pretty good with an axe. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> You're uh, so how are you? Good. Yeah, making it. Um, it's not really the dead of winter because there are some weird like 60 degree stuff now yeah. there was a warning i thought maybe we'd have some snow today mm. but that was all a lie a bitter lie they got it so, up in the mountains yeah yep but uh as i like to say just ride in the waves of life yeah, it's pretty much here. I mean, as we're recording this, we're very close to holiday break in the end of December. Of course, this is coming out in the middle of January, which is the dead of winter. <laughs> but we have a long weekend in there somewhere. It's like February and March that are the ones that are just like mm. a slog. So yeah. hopefully it won't be too bad this year. Maybe we'll actually get some snow, unlike last year. Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, so... All right, yeah, so we're doing Beowulf. The author of Beowulf is unknown, by the way. 
Um, and I'll take you, I'll take us through, of course, the history and the, the stuff we are doing specifically translation by the Irish poet Seamus Haney. Um, I have a little bit of a bio on him as well. So, uh, we'll, but we'll get to that in a minute. First, I have to ask you what your history with Beowulf is. Yeah, I'm not sure that I've ever read fully Beowulf, but it could also be because it has been so long that I just don't remember. So I just feel like, because I even asked Tom if he had done it, and then did he do excerpts of the whole thing, and he told me excerpts. So I would think that it was most likely my senior year, because I remember my senior year, of English was a dual enrollment mm. and that man spoke old English. So yes. he would like go th- through and, and do things. And I remember reading the, the Canterbury tales. So again, um, at least excerpts because I knew things because, and the reason why I think I must have read pieces of it is because for some reason, and I think I maybe owe my parents an apology. I went to go see the Beowulf film. With my parents, the Robert Zemeckis one. And I just remember, I was looking up because I thought, I wonder what Grendel, I can't remember what Grendel looks like in this film. And then I was thinking to myself, wasn't Beowulf like naked in this scene? Yes. And so I look it up on YouTube and I'm like, oh yeah. And they're doing the whole Austin Power thing where everything's covering his genitals. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that we know in the text that he says that he is going to like remove everything. He, it's going to be like a very, you know, fight so that he can prove his strength. Yeah, it's hand-to-hand I feel combat. like he would at the very least still wear some sort of underwear. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so that's it. because, I mean, you don't want your genitals just dangling around like that seems like a, an easy hit point. So at least I've read some excerpts and I have seen the film. Um, I don't think I, I. Yeah, I feel bad that I brought my parents to that, honestly. But because um, <laughs> I don't think it was very good. I feel like it was a birthday movie, too, for me to choose. Um, but that is my history. So this is the first time. I fully like sat down and read the whole thing and considered it. And I think that it was much easier now, Stella now, Mm -hmm. than Stella senior year for sure. All right. Yeah, I first encountered this my senior year of high school as well. Um, And I'm pretty sure I read excerpts too. Uh, I did get it assigned to me again in my freshman year of college because I was – was in the Loyola Honors Program, and they had this four semesters of a course that were like, it was literature from the ancient world, medieval literature, the renaissance of the modern world, and then the modern world of literature, and, and all the interdisciplinary philosophy, theology, history, etc. So Beowulf was one of the things in the medieval lit and history course that we had to do. And um, I specifically remember it was the Penguin Classics edition, you know, with the black spine and the... You know, that's that classic thing. And um, so that was the first time I read the whole thing. And then uh, my first year teaching seniors, which would have been 08, 09, back uh, all those years ago, I was teaching a collaborative English senior class. We did uh, excerpts from that were in the English textbook. And um, I've only ever taught it like four, maybe three or four times. Um, I taught it my first year or so with AP Lit, and then I dropped it from the course because I couldn't get what I wanted out of it 
for the AP Lit curriculum, I decided to do, I think I slotted another novel in its place because I was just, it was, it, it fit better. Um, but I know I never re- did the entire thing in terms of teaching it. We just read the, the intro, the battle, the three of the three battles in the ending. Um, but this particular version, the Seamus Haney version came out, uh, back in 1999. And I remember, uh, I remember when it hit, when it first started being sold in the U S it actually made some news. I never read it until maybe five or six years ago. And I got a copy, uh, and just from there, um, really enjoyed it. And yeah. And so I've read, I have now read this in full, like three times, I think this version twice and the others, uh, just, uh, once. So, yeah. All right. So I'm going to get into the history of the poem. I'm going to get into, uh, a little brief bio of Seamus Haney, etc., And then we will get into the plot synopsis. The author of Beowulf is unknown. We actually don't even have an attribution to somebody. Kind of like there are theories of whether or not Homer was an actual person. And like one person, there are theories that speculation that Homer was actually the person who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey actually were two people. So we don't know necessarily like everything about that person. We do know Virgil existed, obviously. Um, But... There's no one author attributed to the work Beowulf. In fact, there's actually a little bit of ambiguity regarding when the poem was originally composed. We do know that more or less Beowulf is a fictional hero, but his exploits and the events of the epic are placed in the context of real events that occurred in the 5th or 6th centuries because there are references within the text to people who actually existed at the time. So much like the Greek and Roman epics, this has a tinge of historical fiction to it, even though it's more legend than it is reality, but it's purported history, right? So the date that the poem was written down, though, is sometime in the 10th or 11th centuries during the Anglo-Saxon rule of Britain and before the 1066 Norman invasion. The oldest known manuscript is dated from 975 to 1025, and it was copied slash written down by two different unknown scribes. And uh, they know it's more than one person based on the change of handwriting that happens about halfway through the text. That manuscript, which is the oldest existing manuscript of Beowulf, is partially burned. It survived a fire, and it actually has a result. There's lines that have gone missing um, over the centuries, and it's believed in including a portion of the battle with the dragon uh, toward the end of the of, of the epic, which you actually uh, emailed me about at one point because you had been reading and you're like, why does this seem to skip like an entire? It feels like this skips a lot of stuff that's missing. And and I did a little bit of research, and that's one of the speculations that part of that that battle is is what was lost in in that fire and stuff. So you're reading a partially incomplete. Um, or a mostly complete epic when you're reading uh, Beowulf. And I will tell you that I'm giving you a very vague overview of the history of this epic poem because you can go down a very deep rabbit hole on this topic because you get, then you get into Anglo-Saxon rule of England, you get to their mythology, their lore, you get to the history of their literature, other epics <laughs> into the medieval period, 
eventually you hit like I don't know the Arthurian like it, you, it's just eventually you find yourself like immersed in medieval literature and wanting to read everything or maybe that's just me because I'm a nerd but anyway what I can say is this Beowulf is an epic poem and is considered the work of literature from which English lit originates the poem has been translated from Old English several times with ours being courtesy of Irish poet Seamus Haney Incidentally, the version on our English 12 textbook that I have, and you might have too, is by Burton Raffle. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien tried to translate the poem, but never finished and wrote about, at length about the difficulty of translating it. This is published posthumously by his son Christopher, and it includes a summary retelling alongside commentary, but not Tolkien's actual incomplete translation. The poem has also been adapted for film and for the comic book medium. Uh, Stella, you mentioned the Robert Zemeckis 2007 film is animated in that weird Polar Express type of motion capture style that worked a little bit better in Beowulf than it did in the Polar Express. I find the Polar Express movie really creepy, but um, <laughs> it, it does, it's just very, very odd. But I've never it, seen it, it, so yeah. I can't tell. But it, it did kind of work. I saw it in 3D. Not the Polar Express, Beowulf. I saw Beowulf in 3D. Oh, okay. At the, at the Carmike Theater in... Oh, uh, may it rest in peace. Yeah, now it's a jump. It's, now it's a jump. Uh, it stars Ray Winstone as Beowulf, Anthony Hopkins as Rothgar, Crispin Glover as Grendel, and Angelina Jolie as Grendel's mother. Uh, Neil Gaiman helped write the story, and uh, from what I understand, they zhuzhed it up a little, and... Um, Beyond the battle with Grendel, there's not much that's actually that faithful to the to the original story. The the dragon is the child of of Grendel's mother and Beowulf because she's not like a, a monstrous hag. She's a, she's Angelina Jolie. Oh yes, and, you know, gilded. I'm pretty sure. Yes, and uh, gilded and naked, and um, <laughs> well, computer naked. Yeah, and um, then you have uh, I believe the. Grendel was like the illegitimate son of Rothgar's. It's just, it's all, they, they, they added a lot of soap opera y drama elements because they didn't think it would translate very well to the screen for a modern movie audience. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't the biggest fan of it when I saw it, but, and, and, and yeah, points for effort, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, comic book wise, it's been adapted into a number of graphic novels. There was an adaptation by Gareth Hines, and, and which is actually a pretty faithful adaptation. He does a lot of adaptations of these old stories. He does. He did a really good Odyssey adaptation. I think he's done the Iliad. I don't know if he's done the Aeneid or anything else, but it's a pretty straightforward. The kids, like students, like to read it because the illustrations are very solid and um, and and it tells the story pretty thoroughly. Uh, there was an adaptation slash interpretation by Santiago Garcia and David Rubin that I believe Image Comics puts out maybe in 2010, 2011. It's, it was really interesting. The art was great, but it's a sort of like, there's not as much dialogue in it. So it's a lot of more silent images and a lot of it's, it's way more artistically interpreted than say a straightforward adaptation of it. And the only reason I remember it existing is because the public library had a copy and DC Comics had a Beowulf series in the 1970s as part of like one of their sword and sorcery comics. It lasted six issues. I have five of the six issues. I do not own, I don't own number one because I found them all really, really cheap. And it's kind of strange. <laughs> so from what I understand, I think issue one starts off pretty faithful to the epic. 
But then it goes like in this weird direction where like he goes on side quests. At one point he's abducted by aliens. It's so bizarre. It's like wacky bronze age stuff. It's kind of fun to read. Um, it, anyway. So let's talk a little bit about Seamus Haney, who's our translator. The source for this is the American Academy of Poets, and I've truncated the bio that they had there just for time. Haney was born on April 13, 1939, in Castle Dawson, County Derry, Northern Ireland. Haney produced several collections of poetry during his career. He won several awards. In June of 2012, he was awarded the Lifetime Recognition Award from the Griffin Trust for Excellence in Poetry. He was a foreign member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and held the chair of Professor of Poetry at Oxford from 89 to 94. In 1995, he received the Nobel Prize in Literature. And he was a resident of Dublin from 1976 until 2013. Beginning in 1981, he also spent part of the year teaching at Harvard, where in 1984 he was elected to the Boylston Professor of Rhetoric and Oratory. He passed away in Dublin on August 30th, 2013. He was 74. So the translation is dedicated in memory of Heaney's friends, the poet and translator Ted Hughes. Not everybody runs with a good crowd. I'm sorry. Anyway, an introduction gives a first first overview of Beowulf as a poem. The introduction is actually pretty interesting. Um, I read it because I just had it in front of me. I told Stella she didn't have to read it. We're not going to talk about it. It goes on for a little too long because it really goes into the weeds about how he um, translated it and a little bit of the history. But it was pretty interesting. It was almost like an academic paper. So Haney notes that, quote, one publication stands out when considering it as a work of literature, and that's Tolkien's 1936 essay, Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics. Haney then provides a note about the translation, saying, quote, I suppose all I am saying is that I consider Beowulf to be the part of my voice right. He at once follows this by stating that coming from an Irish nationalist background, having learned Irish and culture, which he saw as the language that had been robbed of, it took him a quote, a while to persuade himself that he was born into the language of Beowulf. The translation is followed by family trees on the Danish slash shieldings, Swedish slash and Geet slash Hrethel's dynasties. Wow. And now I get to mispronounce Scandinavian names and not Korean names. Um, and a note on Old English names by Alfred David. By the way, I own, and I don't know what copy you were able to check out of the library, I own the bilingual edition. And I, re- I really like to think this is cool. So in the bilingual edition of this translation, um, everything is a two-page spread. And on the left-hand page, you have the Old English and on the right-hand page, you have Haney's translation. It's really cool to see the Old English. You know, I could barely read and translate or pronounce, like, any of these words. But it was fascinating for me. In the same way, like, I, you mentioned the Canterbury Tales. When I took a course on Chaucer in college, I had to read the Canterbury Tales in Middle English and then transcribe it in parts. Um, so this is just as a language nerd, this is this was kind of interesting to see. So if you do want to pick up a copy of this, I do recommend the bilingual edition just for that little nerd feature, Easter egg feature there. The translation did get uh, a lot of praise. It was widely welcomed by critics, scholars, and poets, winning the 1999 Whitbread Book of the Year Award. 
who was New York Times bestseller and the winner of the Costa Book Award. The scholar James S. Shapiro states in the New York Times that Haney's Beowulf is, quote, as attuned to the poem's celebration of the heroic as it as he is to its melancholy undertow. Joan Acasella, writing in The New Yorker, compares Haney's version to the posthumous translation by J.R.R. Tolkien, but states that Haney focused more on the poetics rather than the details and the rhythm of the original, creating a necessarily free version more fit for the modern reader. Another poet, Andrew, Andrew Motion, wrote in the Financial Times that Haney had, quote, made a masterpiece out of a masterpiece. Other commentators, while respecting the translation, noted that it brought a distinctly northern Irish voice to the poem. In his introduction, Heaney recalls that he had noticed the likeness of Old English Polian to the northern Irish, often described as, quote, Ulster dialect Thol, meaning to suffer or endure. It was a word his aunt and his big-voiced relatives had used, giving him a link between the poem and his family. Megan Rosenfeld in the Washington Post wrote the translation was, quote, not criticism-free, but had been, quote, hailed as newly accessible in the press, for example, by The Independent in London. So anything to add to that before I get into our plot? Nope. Okay. Beowulf opens with a funeral. It opens with a funeral and a recount of past kings, specifically Danish kings. And that leads to the story of the Danish king, Hrothgar, who is as a celebration of his great victories and, and show of status, has built a great mead hall named Herot, or Herot. The Danes celebrate the opening of Herot with nights of partying, as you do. None, no word whether or not Chris Hemsworth was there. However, this disturbs Grendel, a monster from the depths who is, as the poem describes, a descendant of Cain. That meaning Cain from the Bible. Um, Grendel attacks Herod for several nights, killing many men. And as a result, Rothgar shudders the meat hall and a pallor of sadness and fear fall across the kingdom. Grendel's attacks become well-known. Word spreads to the Geats, a tribe living in what is modern-day Sweden, and to their greatest warrior, Beowulf. He and his men sail across the sea and offer aid to Hrothgar, who gladly accepts. Herot is reopened. Beowulf and his men are feted, and that night Grendel comes again. Beowulf has anticipated this and stands ready. He takes on Grendel in hand-to-hand combat, eventually ripping the beast's arm off. Grendel retreats, presumably back to his lair where he goes to die. Grendel's arm is hung on the wall of Herod as a prize. But the joy is short-lived, as after celebrating Grendel's defeat, the Danes and the Geats face another threat. Grendel's mother, who attacks Herod, steals her son's arm and drags one of the men off to her lair. The next day, Beowulf and his men follow a trail of blood to a lake, and Beowulf pledges to dive down to fight this monster where she lies. To help Unferth, who had earlier challenged Beowulf's prowess, gives him the sword hunting. Beowulf dives in and swims to the lair where he is met with a savage attack. Runting proves to be useless, and he fights her as best he can with his bare hands until he finds a giant sword on the wall of her lair and uses it to kill her. As a prize, he takes Grendel's arm back, and then he finds Grendel's body, and so he also takes Grendel's head. 
Beowulf returns in triumph. He's celebrated in Denmark, and then he and his men return home, where we see that he eventually becomes king of the Geats and rules for 50 years. It's in that 50th year that a thief steals some treasure from the horde of a fire-breathing dragon. Disturbed and angered, the dragon begins attacking the Geats, wreaking havoc upon the land. Beowulf, who is now old but still with the mind of a warrior, pledges to defend his people and marches back to the dragon's lair. But unlike his nearly naked battles with Grendel and his mother all those years ago, well, you know, was, yeah. he goes in wearing armor and he's well armed. Most of the men stay behind. They're too scared to be fight and they don't want to be killed, except for Wiglaf, who stands by his king's side. The two battle and kill the dragon, but Beowulf is mortally wounded. He dies knowing that he has saved his people and he requests that he be buried with the spoils of battle under a huge barrow or mound that is a monument to him. It can be seen far and wide. Wiglaf chides his fellow Geats for their cowardice and laments that the peace of Beowulf brought all of them as their leader and king is ending and the tribal conflicts will more than likely now resume. The poem ends just as it began with a funeral, but this time for Beowulf. So that is, and that is a rundown. I mean, there's, there's other, there's another other events. There's a lot of uh, recaps of uh, tribesmen and history and, and past stories and things and, and a lot of back and forth between characters. But I give you kind of the overview of the three major events that happened and what people really know about Beowulf. So before we get into our discussion... Did you like it? So I told Tom that he, you know, I was asking questions about the queen and her giving torques away, etc. And I made a jest that she probably, because this is so male gazy, that she wouldn't even warrant a line in his synopsis. And in fact... She didn't. Because I didn't she want to didn't. try to mispronounce her name. <laughs> Whatever you have to say to make you sleep well tonight. Mm. Uh, okay. Well, I want to preface this by saying two things. The first thing is that I am biased towards Latin epics or classic, because uh, the Greeks as well, uh, you know, I appreciate. So there's going to be a lot of comparison. Mm-hmm. Between that and this tonight, when I bring up different points, my second thing is that I don't appreciate the language as much um, as Latin. Yeah. So just because I have no background in Old English. So, again, some of my critiques are going to be coming from someone who has just read the modern English. And I realize that I'm missing a lot by not knowing the Old English Mm -hmm. because you miss a lot just reading the translation of, you know, Homer or Virgil. So to answer your question, I'll say it's okay. It was fine. Um, but having read it this time, I find it completely overrated. <laughs> um, I found it easy and also, I mean, we'll get into stuff, but I felt like what I must have, I don't know, um, 
been probably my mind was in 15 different directions as a senior in high school. Um, but I definitely struggled through it. But this one, I was just like, this is really simplistic. But again, I'm reading a translation, so mm-hmm. it's not like I can talk about that. But I do find it very overrated um, in terms of storytelling, in terms of the lead character, Beowulf, in terms of narratively how it's organized. Um and I guess I'll I'll stop there, so we'll get to it. So again, it's fine. I think we have to recognize, you know, it's where it is in place of um in the place of literature and history. But something something was lost. Just to compare it to what we have read with Virgil with Homer, to see that and how amazing it is, and to go here, it's like wow. People really do get dumped down over the generations. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I might be by myself tonight, which I'm interested to hear what you have to say. But that is my opinion going in. I mean, as a piece of literature, if you're going to compare it to those works that come before Homer and Virgil specifically, because out of out of all the uh, I think I've read a couple of other I think I read the history of the Peloponnesian War as well. But I mean, for the the ancient the classics, right? It's like capital C classics, um, the stuff you major in. No, it, it does not hold the same literary merit and warrant the same sort of analysis that you can get. You, can, you can't get as much out of this as you can the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. Um, you also can't get as much out of this as you can get out of some of the later epics that come through the middle medieval period, such as like um, a lot of the Arthurian legend and things like that. That's pretty much the reason I stopped teaching it because in a class that's focused on literary analysis, I needed something with a little more meat on its bones to actually dig into like why you, you know, how you pick it apart and themes and all these things. Mm-hmm. I think it is a historically, it is a very, very important work. Um, and and so when I, I go into it thinking I'm going to read this thing that has a very big historical importance because of its age, because of where it's pulling from and what its influence was down the line, because I see in it some of the same thing, some of the same things we see in terms of heroism character in, in some of those classics and in our modern day heroes and things. And, um, you know, we're going to get into some of this as well. And I see as somebody who, who has always loved medieval adventure, um, I see a lot of, I, I, there's a lot that really, really grips me when I was in high school and college. I enjoyed it. I thought it was okay. It was like, I remember reading it and it was like, all right, this is pretty cool. I thought the fire dragon fight was probably my favorite part, but it really wasn't until I read this translation that I really, really enjoyed it as just a piece of entertainment. Um, I do think it's it is it is more I guess simple in its language and stuff. But Haney is I thought the translation was very gripping and like it reads really fast. And I just thought it was like oh this it felt it felt cinematic in places. I, I really really enjoyed that about this. Um, but yeah, as far as like comparing it to something like Homer, um, no Homer's got this beat by miles. You know, because uh, Homer's The Odyssey, for instance, is much richer in what you're getting out of that as opposed to um, this character. But we can also talk about, like, maybe why Beowulf is so 
I don't know if cipher is the right word. He's just this ideal. And as a character, he is, there's no real development, right? As opposed to Odysseus, who does a lot of stupid things and eventually learns his lesson. Or Arthur, who's whose uh, sins come back to haunt him in the form of Mordred and, and things like that. Beowulf was kind of a one-note character, uh, and he's kind of an idealized hero. But I wonder if that's what something, what the culture was looking at and what the purpose of that particular narrative was. Because, um, yeah, do you think, I mean, like, uh, um, we'll, we'll go right into that. Uh, you know, how is he an example of an ideal slash standard for the culture he's supposed to represent? And how does he match up against Aeneas, Achilles, Odysseus, Perseus, Hercules, like all of the Jason, all those classic heroes? Throw some Romans at me because I mean, I'm naming Greeks. I mean, you know, so um, yeah. like how and, and does he have a flaw? Because it doesn't seem like he has much of a flaw. In, in the book as well. No, and I will say that in this question on the document that Tom wrote, I almost broke up with him as a friend because he spelled Aeneas's name incorrectly. Of course and I did. And I had to fix that. <laughs> I had to fix that because that was a personal slight against me. I, or maybe I was typing is, really fast, Stella, and I didn't go back to correct my words. Whatever you have to say to make you sleep well tonight. So why is he? Is that what you're saying? Or how? 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 Okay. I, golly. Um, this is the thing that I have a problem with his character is because he he's unattainable. It's an unattainable standard because all of these other people that you have just listed off have some sort of um, flaw to them mm. that makes them real. Especially this. So, yes, absolutely. Um, Aeneas, I feel like he's an ordinary fellow. Um, he has fear. He has some challenges. He wishes that he could, you know, he, he thinks of the past a lot. Um trying to think of uh other people potentially obviously achilles um has this anger that really gets at him and he's very prideful as well but this guy it's like there's there's nothing wrong with him he's super strong when someone goes after him he doesn't like get into a rage about a uh, his maligned character he just calmly retells the story about swimming in armor mm -hmm. and battling sea beasts um he seems to be a christian i know we'll talk about that so you know um he follows whoever is in command he doesn't try to usurp the throne um yeah it's like this unattainable standard and so unattainable that he's either neutered or uber masculine because he is he does not marry he does not sire any children so there's also like something weird going on with that so i don't know what was going on in this time that we needed this particular thing i mean potentially things were just really out of control and really lawless and there were no morals which is something that happened in rome of course and that's why the aeneid came around and so now we need this great guy that is not only pointing us to towards back towards morality 
and, but is also like super masculine and we can, we can look up to him. But I found him, even though we're talking about him fighting these monsters and having a great story, I found him very boring. Um, like he, his speeches were boring to me because I think having a character that has a flaw, um, to a certain extent makes them relatable, but it's also like, oh, what are you, how are you going to get yourself out of this? And for Beowulf, it was always strength. There wasn't any like cleverness about it. Sure. There were some times that the tools that he was using were not the best or they failed him, but then he just got another tool that just happened to be there. And then with brute strength fought what he needed to and ended up winning. And so Odysseus, for example, is so compelling because when you have him against Polyphemus, for example, if Beowulf were in that situation, Beowulf would just straight up deck him and like they'd be tussling on the ground size didn't matter but with odysseus he had to figure out a way because that size differential was an issue a way to knock him down and of course you had the burning stake through his eye and everything and that was able to get it so it was all about using his cleverness and of course his cleverness got into trouble because he gets to the bank and then he's yelling at him and then you know poseidon gets <laughs> on it so it's the whole thing but it's odysseus is it's like for, for- Every great thing Odysseus does, he does something incredibly stupid. Of course. And I'm not saying that he's an awesome – because of course we're – as readers, I think we get annoyed with him too and roll our eyes like, why would you do that? But think, looking at that situation, like how are you going to get yourself out of this Odysseus as his men are getting killed, using the sheep to hide under – like that's really engaging and interesting and something that you or I could potentially, you know, potentially be in a situation like that, not just – I'm an uber mensch and I am going to now beat this guy up. So, uh, yeah, I, I find him unfortunately very boring and there's no, it's, he's very static the entire way through. And yeah, so I can't really, I wish I knew the bad thing about this also, I guess my third, um, warning, I guess, to audiences beyond uh, my comparisons and the language is that historically, I don't have a lot of background either. And I think that's another thing that would suit you well is to have that background because I know what's going on in Rome at the time um, or in Greece at the time politically as as well as, you know, during the Trojan War when things were written. And so that background knowledge or even myths, because we're going to talk about some of these segues, like I understand what's happening, but um, here I don't I don't necessarily have that background, so I feel like maybe I answered you, maybe I didn't answer you, but I I can always you know guess maybe what was going on at the time and that they needed this amazing man that uh, could do no wrong, but unfortunately he just does not read well on paper in my opinion. Okay, yeah, I think um, when I when I hear mm-hmm. this, I hear I hear the voices of like. Um, the 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 bards of, of those times or even in earlier stories telling the tales of the hero to the crowd as entertainment where they tend to make they tend to focus on their heroic feats as opposed to their character and their the aspects of their character that are important are the ones that come into play through the heroism um yeah Beowulf is not much of a character and by just reading around the, the kind of the context um, or just kind of the context clues through the uh, through what I'm seeing here and, and little I know about this this culture, 
is um, that it seems that you have a culture in these Viking, for lack of a better word, tribes of the Geats, the Nord nations, the Geats, the Danes, etc., um, that are very uh, like f- inter-warring f- with one another. And everything is in is in disarray, and there's and this seems to be some sort of almost kind of moral example, or or example not like a moral, but like like an ideal of honor in battle, and for your leader and things in the way that like or, or as a warrior. In 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 sort of that context, to perhaps because it seems like at the end he's there, like Wiglaf is chiding everybody for, you know, hey, we are kind of all screwed now. Where everybody's going to get back to fighting one another because, you know, which which is a kind of a flaw in Beowulf. He never had and it never ensured that like you know his legacy would carry on. Um, but I but I see uh, I see that they're they're possibly t- trying to teach a lesson. Um, and also possibly, and we can get into the Christianity angle here too, um, setting up something as an ideal example of which to follow, um, so that you're in, you're go to go into the correct so such and such path. Um, yes, he does get very there. There's very. Um, I joke with my students that this is this is uh, this is basically professional wrestling with Vikings, um, but honestly, and I think one of the reasons I've always loved this is that I grew up watching '80s action movies, and this is a Schwarzenegger film, right? It's like you know, I mean, Arnold does things that are clever sometimes, but for the most part, like. And uh, and if you've never, if you could ask Donovan about the last thirty minutes of Commando, it's basically like <laughs> Beowulf was going to mow everybody down, like Arnie does, and and you know, and, but Beowulf doesn't quip the way that Arnie does, and that's I think what the appeal for me has always been. It's just it is it is very it is very superhero. Um, I try not to apply a lot of modern day sensibilities to it. Uh, because I know that it is not, it was not written for a modern audience. And it's, um, the reason it's even here is because, it, you know, or is still looked at us is because it's of its age and, and the fact that it survived too. Had something else of the time survived that was perhaps a little bit better, maybe that would have been helpful. But then again, don't forget, we have a fall of, in a big way, of culture. And of um, and of literature and of a lot of the elements that made the classical world great after the fall of Rome. So you have and you have things in the medieval era that are. It's not it's not an absence of culture and it's not an absence of literature and things, but there there is a there is a huge gap 
between what was lost. There was a lot of things that were lost when, when Rome fell and, and gradually fell and kind of, and things kind of wasted away. And you have this, this very fallow period in, in many cases. And you have, you know, we get into the 1300s and things start looking up and then the plague comes along and then it kind of like, it kind of kicks things back for a little bit for a while and you eventually get the Renaissance. But, um, I think that also reflect, this also reflects that too. Um, that it's, it's purposeful to entertain, but there's also sort of some sort of like ideal moral storytelling going on here to tell all these people like who are not living the ideal of what the Viking warrior should be or something. If somebody's like trying to chide them or teach them a lesson and kind of be pedantic too. Um, in the same way that on some level, some of the Arthurian legend is used to show knights who were not necessarily acting the way people expected knights to act, what a knight should act like, you know, especially in characters like Galahad, you know, Percival and those who actually are are more pure than, um, and also show the flaws. You know, those characters are flaws though, because Lancelot and Arthur are flawed, but that's a whole other, we could have that whole other conversation if we ever decide to read that stuff. But yeah, so, but so I I see what you mean by like, he's not a, he's, he's exciting in that his deeds are exciting and, and it's action packed and it's fun and it's adventurous, uh, especially to somebody who as a boy was raised on stories like this. Um, but as far as examining this character, put him in league with somebody like Odysseus or Achilles, Achilles, who, by the way, spends like half of the Iliad just whining in a tent, um, or Aeneas and stuff. It, he does not hold up to like the, the richness of those characters, but I don't think the period here and the culture here, no offense to the Vikings holds up to the richness of Greece or Rome too. So it's kind of representative of that too. Um, but we do have this thing. Um, yeah, so there are, and there, you know, we'll talk about the fact that there, there's literally like two named women in the entire, um, maybe in the entire, in the entire epic, one of which is Grendel's mother and the other one is, and I'm going to try to Wiltho, Wiltho, Wiltho. That's W E A L H T H. E-O-W, Wheeltow, which is Rothgar's wife. Um, we could talk about that, too, because this is a very masculine story in a way that is um, way more than I'll go with the Odyssey and the Aeneid, because I haven't read the Iliad in 25 years. You know, the Odyssey has an entire storyline that in which a woman is the hero, right? It has uh, the protagonist. It has Penelope, who's um, depending on how you look at it, either is the wife that stays at home and longs for her man, or has a little bit more agency in the way she, you know, tricks the suitors, et cetera, et cetera. And they have, of course, the Cersei and Calypso and stuff like that. But here, there's no women here. It's this. It's this sort of very. It's very chest thumping masculinity and i think if you were ever to teach a course in literature and the and how masculinity is expressed through literature over time this would have to be in there because it sets up an, a very interesting ideal or path to follow that could easily be mis- misinterpreted i think um i mean is is there some is there some toxic masculinity 
in Beowulf or that could come from Beowulf or am I uh, projecting in somewhere or another? Well, first of all, to talk about the lemon, mm-hmm. I do want to at least mention that it carries on, I think, the theme of some of these um, Homeric ep- epics in that Homer very much just keeps to a woman is either one of two things. She's either a temptress or a weaver mm-hmm. or um, a weaver and a witch, like depending on what you you know take about yeah. that. So obviously Penelope being um, weaver. the weaver and, and a good wife. And showing uh, the ultimate I- ideal of, of what a woman should be and do versus um, kind of the sex pot, uh, the, the seductress- seductresses yes. of, of Circe and um, Calypso, that sort of thing. And here, yeah, we kind of have that with, uh, uh, I mean, Grendel's mother, I don't think think necessarily that we can call her a sex bot, but definitely like the witch witch aspect. Yeah. Um, the fact that she has control over all these beasts in that area. And, um, I think just choosing it to be Angelina, Angelina Jolie was a directorial (laughs) choice. It was. Take take what with it. Yeah. I'm sure that was like a sexual awakening for many a young, um, man or, or woman. And, uh, then, yeah, you have, have the queen who is giving out torques to different people. I think there is maybe a daughter or a niece who's going around filling up cups. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will say that I think either Rothgar's wife or was the king before, like the wife was described as like, be it was almost like being good in bed like that the line was just like a comfort in bed i'm like okay okay interesting interesting and i was also trying to figure out if he had if he had kind of a harem because there was there was another line when he had left um i actually i would like to hear what you have to say about this because i did i mean there's a lot of like beat the beat the chest and and beat men but there were also moments of gravity and showing emotion and um obviously deference towards the king and and towards um God. And so I think in that way, I did not see a lot of toxic masculinity because I think Rothgar is really quite shaken. He shook by the stuff that's been going on and that he's losing all these men. And I think um, even, you know, Beowulf, when the dragon is attacking, he takes that to heart because this is his land and he's he was the one that was chosen to be the, the protector over it. So I feel like compared to other things, they're more in touch with their emotions and they're not afraid to show it and also show the love that uh, people would have between each other. Brotherly love, I think, especially at the end uh, with his comrade and then how much people loved, well, his his group, the Geats, loved Beowulf when he first went down against um, uh, Grendel's mother. mother. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's still some kind of play, you know, boys that play situation as well, because there's a question I had that hopefully we talk about where I think it was like line one, two, I don't know, two, one, nine, zero. I don't, I, it's something around there. Um, where I guess Beowulf was kind of bullied back home. 
it seemed like there's like a contradiction that I was trying to figure out. So I think there's still some of that, but uh, I don't sense as much toxic masculinity as you may. So I'd love to hear your thoughts as well as examples. Um, I actually don't sense a lot of toxic masculinity. That was kind of the question was kind of like Twitter bait (laughs) in that, like, I see, I see, I see this, like, nobody really brings it up very much on Twitter. They're too focused on like, you know, bashing Holden Caulfield, but, um, but I see where this would just be dismissed because of it's so outward displays of masculinity, but you're right. There's a lot of, the the sense of honor is very, very strong in that you recognize the king and you have a deference to uh, higher powers, whether they be human or, or, uh, or deity and the emotion, the showing emotion. I think that is really, really interesting. And, and really, really um, one of the kind of the things that shows that uh, shows a really, really good example for it because they, they do show feeling and show feeling in a healthy way as opposed to, you know, and a lot of times it does get translated into like honor and chest thumping and stuff like that. But, um, you know, they, they, they cry over their loss, their losses. Um, they, they certainly are fearful. Uh, and there's no, there's a portion. So uh, the, the character of Unferth is a supporting character and he, he's the one who gives Beowulf his sword hunting to go down and fight Grendel's mother. But prior to that, he was trash talking Beowulf, like saying like, mm-hmm. you know, and trash talking his prowess. And it was not so much the sort of toxic calling you a, a, a female word, right. And that sort of thing, like putting you down, it was more of a, you brag so much, but you're actually not even, you know, <laughs> you're, <laughs> You're all hype, right? It's basically what he's saying. He's like, you know, you're you're not as good as you say you are, which is a totally different thing than calling somebody a you know a wuss, right? And um, Beowulf proves his worth in that sense to to Unferth, and Unferth is is very much the the the, the giving him of the sword is that sort of um, recognition that that he gets uh, as far as that's concerned and so i think in many cases you have um what's interesting is you actually some of the supporting characters in the in the, no- in the novel in the epic are a little more real than beowulf right you know the the i mean they're not the, not of them are very fully developed it's not a very long poem um because it's only like what 20 I think it's less than three thousand lines. Three thousand. Yeah, it's it's in the early. Is it uh, thirty one hundred ish? Yeah, it's like thirty well, thirty one fifty, thirty one sixty lines, which compared to the Odyssey and the Iliad and the the Aeneid and such is is incredibly short, right? Um, oh yeah. So so had this been longer, they might have developed those characters, but those characters do seem a little more human than our than our than our protagonist. Um, but yeah, I think that I think it does have. Um, it does have value because it was showing a, um, it was showing men in a way that I think that many who would, I, in, in our modern day, who would idealize the way this sort of character 
I think a lot of some people would take the wrong things from somebody like Beowulf or, or somebody like Unferth or Rothgar and, and these other characters. I think they would take all of the braggadocio and they would take all of the strength and they would take all of the all of the what they see as the manly men part, but forget the emotions that are in the core of some of the scenes. And that's where I think that that's where it, so it's in the interpretation where things can become toxic. Um, I don't think, you know, and, and there, there are, there's like literally, like I said, there's like two women in the entire thing or three or four and like either, either serving men or they're dragging them to their deaths. There's really no, <laughs> there's, it's a very patriarchal society. It's a very patriarchal book, but I don't think that cancels its relevance as far as, or its place of where it is. And I think if you were examining this as like, you know, how does this culture view men or masculinity? I think it, it does hold up as a pretty interesting example to um, at least discuss and debate, uh, especially compared to other cultures too. Cause you, I think you could compare that to um, it's other medieval things or, um, or even some of the classics. Like I, I think you, when you were describing that and you were saying that, um, I thought to Macbeth and I thought to act four, the last scene of act four where Macduff finds out that his family has been killed. Cause remember he was like away in like Ireland or wherever he was, um, with, Malcolm, I think he was either Malcolm O'Donnell and, 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 and his wife and kids were at home and Macbeth had them all slaughtered and he finds out and he's like, uh, the, the prince is like, you have to take this like a man and Macduff's like, yeah, but I have to feel it like a man too. Um, it's like the best part of what is an ultrally like overlong scene. And I, I see a little bit of that in, in here too. So again, it's, it's actually, believe it or not, it's kind of like a good example. Um, as, as far as this is concerned. Uh, I also think we could probably start to segue into a little bit with the, um, the Christianity aspect of it, but I'll get, I'll get to the 2190 section next, but uh, in my rambling, did you pick anything out that you wanted to expand upon dispute, et cetera? No. Okay. Um, all right. So what you're talking about is on our copy. Oh, we're looking at 2190. Yeah, so it's page, oh, okay. and you can tell that it's like page 150, 149 or so, is where 2190 is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you can tell, by the way, um, where where certain parts of the thing have been, have been omitted because you have ellipses and some of the things. So, um, all right. So the battle framed, the battle famed King bulwark of his earls ordered a gold chased heirloom of Rethels to be brought in. It was the best example of gem studded sword in the great treasury. This, this he laid on Beowulf's lap and then rewarded him with his land as well. 7,000 hides in a hall and throne. Both. Can I cut yeah. you off? It's actually um, 2180, one, two, three. Okay. All right. So what I was just yeah, reading ben. is Hegeliak is presenting Beowulf with a sword yeah. and a great yeah. tracks of land. 
the previous section, Bay, well, I'm reading the the margin note, the margin summary. I like these margin summaries, by the way. It was like, oh, this is what's oh, happening. Yeah, I, yeah, I really yeah. like those because, like, okay, now I can see what this is going on. Beowulf's exemplary life is extolled. Um, so Beowulf bore himself with valor. He was formidable in battle. He behaved with honor. He took no advantage, never cut down a comrade who was drunk, kept his temper and warrior that he was, watched and controlled his God-sent strength and his outstanding natural powers. I want to say that's the that's the the scribes and the and the people saying, hey, like this guy never got into a drunken fight and punched his friend. <laughs> he had been poorly regarded for a long time, was taken by the Geats for less than he was worth, and their lord too had never much esteemed him in the mead hall. They firmly believed that he lacked force, that the prince was a weakling, but presently every affront to his deserving was reserved was reversed. Okay, so. And then compare that to line 401, 2, 3, 4, 5, 415. So every elder and experienced councilman among my people supported my resolve to come here to you because all knew of my awesome strength. So why is there that contradiction? Is he lying? Why is it Mm. like up to that point when we're in the 2180 section, I thought that everyone loved Beowulf, everyone knew a Beowulf, but then we get to 2180, and no, actually, not a lot of people may have liked Beowulf. Well, I wonder, like, when, so it says his life is exalted, so I'm sitting there going, looking at this, I'm like, well, when was he poorly regarded? <laughs> so this is where the structure of the story really needed to be a little bit longer, uh, because it doesn't really give a specific um, frame of reference to when this happened, because he does talk about his past exploits in other parts, like the, the, the contest he had with his friend, like you were saying, they both dove in and had a swimming contest with their chain mail. On. How do you, you're right. I'm with you. How do you swim with chain mail on? But so like, was it, was there something in battle prior to him going to see Grendel that earned him his, that started to earn him the reputation that he eventually has? And prior to this, though, he was not seen as um, anything really worth paying attention to. That's me trying to explain what looks like an inconsistency between. Well, then, is how is he showing his strength that everyone knew his strength? In where? Just with like run of the mill activities. Well, that's the that was in 416. Yeah, it says, let's see. Or 4. No, I got you. Um, so every elder experienced councilman among my people. They have seen me boltered in the blood of enemies when I battled with and bound the five beasts, raided a troll nest, and in the night sea slaughtered sea brutes. I have suffered extremes and avenged the geats. Their enemies brought it upon themselves. I devastated them. Now I mean to be a match for Grendel. So I think if you're following a through line, he had been poorly regarded for a long time. Um, but presently, every front to his deserving was reversed. I, I think that, um, you know, they're, they're putting all, they're giving him all of these. This is before the dragon shows up and he has returned home after, um, defeating Grendel and the mother, because they're all giving him gifts. And at the end, because the right after in line 2200, um, 
is when he's, we start to fast forward for 50 years and he's king. So I think what that is, is that prior to, you know, he, he comes, he shows up and he's done some things. He's fought some battles. He slayed some monsters and now he's bringing his reputation, whether it is true or he is exaggerating it as some time to do. And he's doing this for Rothgar at this point in the story where he were in 22, 21, 22, 90, where they're, they're, um, 2180, 2190, where they're, they're sort of recapping like what they had thought of him. Um, he has returned and they're like, he has kind of fully become Beowulf the hero and they're honoring him as such. So what would have been interesting to see and what is left out of this epic is that trial and tribulation of Beowulf at the younger, right? As a younger man having to prove himself before he even hears of Grendel and is kind of like levels up after that. That would have actually made him a little bit more of a rounded character because you would have seen a, a progression of, you know, we don't, so we don't get, cause you don't get much about his childhood beyond like bragging of feats and things like that. So I don't know if it's a contradiction so much as it, it's, it's kind of filling in a little bit of backstory, but it's not done with a lot of detail. So we're not seeing as much as we really needed to, cause they left, you know, it, it almost like they should have put that part in earlier in some sense or another. I don't buy okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> we should start a Twitter poll. Do you believe, Tom, that this is a narrative progression, or do you think that maybe the author wasn't always cracked up to be and he made a mistake? It's possible. Because he forgot. It's possible. Also, don't forget, Haney's translating this from a manuscript that was written by two people. Who knows what inconsistencies exist in that manuscript between the two people who were writing it down from whoever was telling it? as a story orally, right? So yeah. it's very possible that there is this glaring inconsistency in the story because it was not written, written at first, right? It's, it's been, you know, this is something I learned as back as far as high school. And so we can get into this is that this started in some way and it probably morphed and evolved until it was finally written down. So the original version of Beowulf was probably much maybe maybe not that much different but it, it was different in ways than what we have on the page right now in even in the old english yeah. yep and i will say because i know you're like real hot for uh haney here um that i wish that he had had footnotes mm -hmm. or on certain things i mean there were some words i had to look yeah. up like demoscened or something like that. There, I mean, there were a couple, I was like, what is this word? But also just like notes, maybe on translating. I would have appreciated that because that's some, that was very unusual. I think to not have, yeah, them. that was actually one of my questions. Should this have had more annotations and footnotes to help the reader? And I totally agree. I would have loved yeah. more footnotes and annotations in this. I like those little summaries on the right hand margin where it says this is happening and this is happening. Cause it made it a little easier to follow. 
but notes on the translation or a notes section in the back or some sort of a, you know, yeah. that would have been really, it, first of all, would have been fascinating, right? To see a little bit of his process, a little more of his process. It also would have helped a lot. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, given us some context for things that like, you know, you're just trying, your brain trying to fills in as best you can so that you can keep going in the story. Um, so we're going to get into the, the religion part in a moment. But before we do that, I want to do one last thing about heroism and reputation and honor. Why? So we have the Geats and they have their major hero, Beowulf, right? And he, he they're, 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 he's, he's their, ret, they're his retinue. He's like, you know, they're his crew. Why? Despite his reputation, despite his honor, despite everything that he is, um, when he's fighting Grendel's mother, and especially at the end with the dragon, why does significant number of his men never actually fight with him? They seem scared. They're not willing to join him in these battles against these monsters. Now, he says he's going to fight Grendel by himself. So we can rule that one out. He's like, I'm going to take him on. So that that is pure, like, testosterone you know, swinging around and in the movie, actually, literally. Um, but then with, with nobody goes into the water with him. They kind of stay back when he dives in. And then none of them, except for Wiglaf, go in to the dragon's lair. <sighs> like, so is that supposed to be us pointing out that the author's pointing out, like, this is how, this is how cowardly these men actually were. And, and this is why they'll never be him. I mean, well, like, why wouldn't they have Cowardly. been inspired to fight alongside of him if he was so great? But he doesn't let them. They don't even have a choice. In the dragon? Sure, the dragon in, episode, it, they do run yeah, away. Yeah, in, in the, but all the other ones, he says, no, no, no. That's true. That nobody ever, nobody overrides his, um, his orders. So I guess there, that's a, that's an honorable thing too. And nobody's stupid enough to challenge him in that way. They're like, okay, like we're going to do as you say and not do anything stupid, but with the dragon, like why run away? But, but the dragon, didn't the dragon originally, that was going to be him too. And then it's really that uh, when they saw that he needed assistance, that's when they ran. I think so. Of course, Horace, he was old, to, too. I have to correct. Yeah. He was he was aged, yeah. He likes to have his backup, just in case. Um, what is to... Uh, well, yeah, obviously, we're going to show, I think, the contrast between these two. I mean, you know, I have a little foil. And <laughs> then I think we can also see um, the contrast between, at the, at the end, with the, the people and his, his little... His, his, his companion, whose name I don't, I don't remember. Nor would I be Wiglaf. able to pronounce it, probably. Oh, <laughs> Wiglaf. Okay, we'll call him Wiggy. So, uh, why have it? Well, again, the ideal, yeah, having having someone uh, be able to master these beasts on his own is amazing. But I also feel like there's a lesson in there because no one man can just well no man is on an island but no one man can just like ha- be a kingdom 
and protect the kingdom, etc. And I think that's what Wiggy is getting to with the speeches mm-hmm. that seem inappropriately said uh, that things are going to be happening soon. And so they all need to band together. And so I think even though Beowulf does not need his companions in order to fight his men, the fact that he always brings them, I think, is is powerful. So it's always like a nation and a community that he's bringing with him um, and that, you know, a leader is not a leader um without people behind him and this just reminded me of the fact he makes some sort of statement about never being scared and that might be a flaw because i feel like you know when we talk about you've read plato's republic yeah, i know a long time ago. i mean the the idea of fear and well courage in particular is not being without fear but having fear and knowing what what to how to harness mm-hmm. it and what to do with it because without fear you're very reckless yeah. and so i feel like when he said that i i so totally rolled my eyes because <laughs> uh, it's more believable that someone does have like if he had said you know oh yeah the, 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 these are scary things but you know i'm able to harness it like i would have respected him way more than that um but yeah i think in terms of his men definitely having uh, uh the community behind him very similar to i think achilles and the Myrmidons. Mm-hmm. Or Odysseus and uh, the Ithacans, uh, even though that one guy's getting all the glory and doing all the action, he still has these other people that he kind of has to worry about always. Yeah, um, and had the narrator of the story given us Beowulf's thoughts at the moment and said that he was saying he wasn't scared, but inside he felt the fear and knew how to channel it or something like that. Right. That would have made it, that would have added a little bit more of a layer to his character and made the, um, the, I'm not scared more of a reassurance for his men than an actual like brag or something like that. But that doesn't happen. Um, no, I, I agree with you. And, and, um, the, the, uh, the fact that he had his, his, he always brought his men with him is, is important. And you're right. Like Odysseus, genuinely cared about his crew and um unfortunately it was fated that his crew all dies um and uh with beowulf it is he's he's bringing the nation with him the unfortunate thing is that you're right no man is an island and he was being held responsible for the fact that they were all at peace with one another because what he had done for everybody else. But now that he's not there anymore, who is to say that this peace will last is what Wiglaf is essentially saying at the end. And mm. um, the Geats themselves might feel pride as a nation because they have Beowulf, you know, so they have a togetherness there, but the camaraderie and the brotherhood would say the Danes is going to erode you know and and such um so it's it's he's that is it probably is one of his his flaws and that he is not um really beyond his own accomplishments or or things is he's not really doing much uh for the future and he's kind of holding together something that really is never going to stay together um i think that's one of the reasons we keep getting these recountings post battle of the history we get a lot of history of different people who had come before and past battles and things and some of them are told in song during you know 
as 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 they want to do in kings and in, in in halls and things like that during these times. But others, it's like these digressions and these tangents into, um, you know, what happened in this battle prior to this or with this person. And I think it was, um, I think that I think it lends Beowulf's the document's credibility uh, in that when people look at it and they see these and they see these are actual references to people that they prove existed. I think this cements it a little more as a historical document because you're telling the tales of people who in battles who actually existed. So there's a value in that narratively. It's kind of like, this is why you do excerpts because it's like, all right, that's interesting. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to read, but I don't really need a huge recap of, you know, Siegfried the great or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Um, I feel like just to take one step back from something you hopped upon, I think that's a flaw. I don't understand why Beowulf does not sire a child because that would have been an easy way to prevent any sort of thing. I don't know what's going on with that. It doesn't seem like he had, maybe he's gay. (laughs) Maybe Beowulf is gay and that's why he didn't have a, maybe, maybe, we don't know. Um, there's my conspiracy theory to put on Twitter. Is Beowulf Wiglaf his Patroclus? Ooh, getting wiggy with it. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to go on X Twitter. But no, 100%. This is what I'm talking about when I said at the top of the two hours that we, I, I think, Man, I, if I were an editor, I'd be taking my red pen to this and like taking things out because we're in a flow. And then all of a sudden it has yeah. this thing that we're talking about. And it was hard for me. So, again, the bias. Right. Uh, and not being as steeped in that history. Would people of the time have known who these people were? Absolutely. Because I think, too, I believe it's book eight of the Odyssey where Odysseus is with um, Nausicaa and her mm-hmm. pappy. And someone starts to sing a song. And, of course, it's like related to it's Odysseus story, and what's going on. It's like horse. Right. So it's like, oh, well, we know that and Odysseus knows that. So we understand why that's related. Um, Even other any other thing, like if it's a myth or something, I'm like totally on board. Like, of course, that makes sense. Like this happens. There's a diatribe and the Aeneid. Or other times it's a parable. So so there is the story is unrelated technically to what we're seeing in front of us. But it's meant to be a parable that that is a lesson that the characters will learn later on. Yeah, but I, I didn't see no. that at all. I was I struggled. Uh, I mean, I emailed you and I was like, I don't know why. Because I said, like, this was pretty easy. But then any of the times someone was, quote unquote, singing, I'm like, I'm, yeah. I'm completely lost. Like, I had to read it a couple of times. The one in particular was about the woman, who like a queen who lost her son and in like a battle. And then it was weird because it sounded like they also killed her. But no, wait, she was actually captured at the end. And there was this whole thing. That section in particular boggled my mind. But it was like unrelated. I mean, they were celebrating and they got to talk. About it. And I'm like, what's happening yeah, here? I, I the thing is, and like I said, I, I think I think on some level you would if you were actually a scholar of this type of literature, you probably could do could give a better explanation than either of us is giving right now. And you could do a deep dive and see some sort of connection. Um, 
my guess is that a lot of this is kind of taped together, so to speak. So maybe this was something oh. that was in something that was written down and was never excised. Um, yeah. But like I said, there is there is actual historical significance to some of these passages and that they are recounting things that actually were. So I can see why people find that valuable, but you're right. As far as the narrative is concerned, um, yeah. unless it was supposed to be something that, unless it, cause it never, it never applies to anything. You're right. Later in the, in the story, you know, it's one thing to tell the story of the great King or the great queen and how they fell and everything. And this is the lesson that Beowulf has to learn to not repeat history, like that sort of thing, that trope, right. but there's none of that there. So I'm with you. It's, it's really, they're really irrelevant and unnecessary. And I would totally have cut them out if I were the editor of this book. Um, you know, on a nerd level, they're kind of fascinating, but I, I will say I skimmed some of those too, where you're just like, all right, let's get back to the story here. You know? So, I tried. You skimmed, man. I was trying my darndest to figure out what was going on. I, well, you know, I was just like, I, I didn't skim. I kind of like tuned it out a little bit. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of seeing this. Okay, they're, they're talking about here. And like, so I kind of bided my time until we got back to the really good stuff. But like I said, I read this in like two days. It yeah. I blew through this. Um, that one was a good and okay section comparing um, Hrothgar's wife to this queen who wasn't uh-huh. the best. But then even that was like, she doesn't sound so bad. Like she seemed to clean up at the end yeah. of the little discursus. So it was interesting. That's the okay. So let's 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 move into the Christianity part. That's the patriarchal aspect of the society and the medieval. I'm gonna I'm gonna stereotype medieval culture here. I'm gonna say that the medieval culture, especially within the confines of the church, which in this case would have been the Catholic Church, and we're talking medieval Catholic Church, you know, the big C. Because um, I think it's this is uh, because you know this is not we're not talking about Byzantium here. Um, it's a very patriarchal structure. You know, women are in servitude and childbearing, and and they have to be virtuous, and you know, you have the dichotomy of of mary the virgin you know um you know the catholic focus on 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 the virgin uh virgin mary and then of course the on the other side you have um the blaming eve for everything right so you know (gasps) which is again which i don't believe to be true but it was very very you know it was it was kind of reinforced a lot through the middle ages right at least to some of the you know peasants who needed to learn a lesson there's a lot of biblical references in this but we never really associate vikings with the bible right we we tend to think of the norse god like thor right you know loki and 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 odin and everything you've seen in four movies some of which were not that great um so let's talk about that. Um, how do you think these got put into this? Is there a conspiracy theory? No, I don't think there's a conspiracy theory. Oh, okay. So you're yeah, just, I was just asking you, like, what, what, you what's know? your, what, okay. what was your, like, you're seeing, let me rephrase it. You're reading this and it's been a while since oh. you've read it. Right. And you're seeing a lot of references not just to like the Bible, because like Grendel being the son of Cain, right? Or a descendant of Cain. But you're seeing them like invoking the Almighty, right? You know, oh Lord, the Almighty. Like they're praying in some ways or invoking him or speaking and stuff like that. 
what was your reaction or train of thought when you started to see those things in what is basically like an Anglo-Saxon Viking epic? Well, if, you know, my theory that potentially this is a callback to morals, mm-hmm. traditional morals, then I, I, I think that it might work and it's trying to go against that. Um, I tr- once you, I saw that question and so I started thinking about it and as I'm reading, uh, again, I'm reading the in- modern English, not the mm-hmm. old English, so it's hard for me to tell. Is this in meter, by the way? I want to say yes, but I don't. Okay. Um, while you, don't know you, you keep talking, I'll look it up. Okay. That would be, it, it's threaded throughout. So it's not just like God is mentioned two times. It's like there are different um, plops that you're seeing Christianity talked about. And if, in fact, it is meter, I it would be hard, I think, for some monk to decide to mess with. Now, monks are very intelligent, but uh, to mess with, I think, the manuscript and the in and the meter in particular with with how it is threaded in. So I believe that it it was there intentionally, and um, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Sorry, hold on. I'm trying to get the page full up. Um, this is this was written in Old English meter. It's the convention. This uh-huh. is the Wikipedia summary. It's the conventional name given to the poetic meter in which English language poetry was composed in the Anglo-Saxon period. Best known example of poetry composed in verse form is Beowulf. But the vast majority of Old English poetry belongs to the same tradition. The most salient feature of Old English poetry is its heavy use of alliteration. Um, let's see. So there's a lot of alliteration. There's certain stress, um, stresses and yeah. So there's a whole Wikipedia page on it, but it was, um, so use of Anglo-Saxon poetic line and reconstructing documents. The theory of old English meter has become an obsession for many scholars, (laughs) but what does it mean? All mean in the overall study of old English poetry. Uh, the fact that the structure of old English poetry is so rigid and formulaic is an incredibly useful tool for extrapolating meaning from damaged or poorly tra- transcribed manuscripts. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they, they use it, they use it like, uh, so apparently like it's very rigid. Um, See, and, it's yes, rigid. And uh, there are, there are certain types of lines um, that are, uh, yeah, that are done in the, the trochaic, iambic, spondanic, and then again, yeah, Ooh. I'm like, even then, I'm like, holy crap, and I've studied okay. poetry, but even I'm like, I don't really, these are certain theories, yeah, see, so, so it, is, yeah. it is very, very metered. So I don't know that someone's going to go in there and, and try to mess yeah. with that necessarily. Because I, I have always thought that this was, that the that the biblical reference were, were added in, or they, they should. They, uh, you well, did. So or, you disagree it, with me. You think that it was easy to do it, it. it. No, it would have been hard, but I think it's maybe not by the monks, but maybe by some of the, the, the I think Scops or Scopes was the name of the people who were the singers of the time, the minstrels of the time, perhaps in the evolution of the poem before it was written down, that did get added by the people. What's the motive? The Christianity starts permeating into barbarian culture as you go through the Middle Ages. 
And um, this is just from what I remember from various, you know, studies and things. One of the ways that they were very smart in getting some of these barbarian, in quotes, tribes, the Germanic tribes, the Vikings, the, you know, the Visigoths and everything to eventually convert was not by burning all their crap down and forcing God on them. It was more like allowing them to keep certain things and slowly morphing it so that they started adopting, like kind of appropriating the Christianity into it. And, and then eventually, you know, when then God eventually replaced all the other things, you know, and they still, they might've still had some of their more pagan celebrations and things like that. Um, which is, you know, why certain traditions of Christmas survive. But Christmas is actually a really good example of how certain things were appropriated, because if you can appropriate it and create more of a connection to it, they're more than, they're more likely to actually, they're more or less likely to resist in the sense. And therefore you, you hook them, you have them. And I think that's what was happening at this time. So you're taking a, an old tale of a Viking hero and you're starting to morph it into somebody who is also an ideal in the eyes of God. So I think that's, that's, you're showing an example. That's a, that's a good example of this happening. So, so somebody would have been singing the praises of Beowulf and such. And we eventually get these Christian elements added in by the songmen, and et cetera, et cetera. And some, eventually somebody writes it down. So that's my theory. Okay, conspiracy theories conspiracy. <laughs> coming from Tom. I don't know if it's conspiracy so much as it's just kind of a practice of the Catholic Church. So it is. It, okay. I mean, they they did essentially do that in, uh, throughout a lot of Europe. Um, the to- okay, so Tom, I'm saying Beowulf is gay, and Tom is saying the Pope rewrote Beowulf. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's the next Dan to. Brown novel, so. <laughs> Oh yeah! But we really should get to one of his. The The Da Vinci Code would be such an interesting episode of this show. I've never oh, read. I it. read it twenty years ago. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, when it first came out. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, and I and I think um, so. I think that's another thing of a. Actually, that makes it that all the Christianity and everything applied to it makes it another piece of history because it's another example of that. When, when you see it, um, let's see. Uh, we talked about backstory with, with Beowulf and how he really doesn't have anything. It probably would have been more interesting if he did. Grendel, who is essentially the neighbor who's pissed off that you're having a party and knocks on the door and shuts the thing down. You kids and your loud party and your rock music. Turn it down, I said. Um, except he just kills a bunch of them. Uh, now, in the film version, I remember the the Grendel monster being very upset and said they tried to they tried to draw a little bit of sympathy toward him in a way, um, or at least that's how Crispin Glover was playing him. I mean, does does Grendel require a backstory beyond the fact that he was? He was uh, the, a descendant of Cain, and uh, is there like, does he require a motive aside from the fact that like you know the loud partying bothered him? Yeah. Would, golly, is he misunderstood? Is he misunderstood? Um, golly. <sighs> well, you know, even Cain, 
had a backstory. <laughs> so I feel like even, you know, even villains or antagonists deserve something. I don't know that it's necessary to go out of your way to make it heinous uh-huh. and have Hrothgar, you know, um, having some sexy time. <laughs> With, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, in the movie, yeah, with with, yeah. with uh, uh, yeah. his mother, that sort of thing, and then oh boy, um, he, I mean, as far as we, all we know is that he has a mother, but it, uh, there's a line in there that said that there was like he wasn't sired by anything, so that's interesting as well. Since the um, <laughs> I, yeah, I know it's it is kind of interesting. I. I guess I would be interested in finding out what was going on because mm-hmm. it, it does seem like, you know, he wasn't invited to the yeah. party. So he was upset and he just he was hungry as well. So it was little nibbles. Um, but I guess that's just me wanting. And, and sometimes things are just black yeah. and white. And so I guess if we're choosing to have that and have him be a foil for Beowulf, then that that succeeds um i personally find gray stories more interesting where there is like at least like a Mm -hmm. reason you know we might not necessarily agree with why grendel is the way he is but i i would be interested to hear a little bit more about i um because we hear about the dragon the dragon gets some backstory so that's kind of a bummer that that one does but grendel or and his mom don't although grendel's not the first monster in an epic like this to not have much of a story behind him beyond what he does you know we don't get we don't get the history of Scylla and Charybdis in the in the Odyssey mm, they just they just yeah. this is what you have to do in order They're to survive them there's a there actually is a slightly legitimate comparison you can make between Grendel and Poly, Polyphemus and his mother and Poseidon now Granted, by the time that Odysseus reaches Polyphemus' island and we have the Cyclops in the cave and everything, he's already pissed off Poseidon for not because he didn't, you know, make an offering to him or whatever, you know, because pissing off the god of the sea when your major mode of transportation back home is a boat is a really smart thing to do. Um, But, you know... Polyphemus would have been a character in Greece that I think people would have known when they heard the story of the Odyssey because he's in other, the Cyclopes are in other myths. So I, but when he's presented right in the Odyssey, you just get the, you, you get the introduction of him coming in and ripping apart Odysseus's men, kind of like Grendel. And then, well, Beowulf kills Grendel, but Odysseus blinds Polyphemus, and then Polyphemus yeah. asks Orion, not Orion, Poseidon, Orion, Poseidon to curse Odysseus to kill Odysseus, or if he can't go, if he can't, you know, make him sure he goes home alone. It's after a long time, and he comes to trouble at home, which is all comes to pass, right? Grendel gets killed and, and his mother gets pissed off. So like there, there's a parallel there. It's not as, it's not as detailed and rich as in the Odyssey, but I see the, see a similar trope uh, between the two. And who knows? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think that Grendel existed outside of this story 
prior to it, you know, unlike Poseidon mm-hmm. and uh, the Cyclops and everything. But if somebody were to uncover something and he's in another thing and he was a well-known monster or something like that, I know yeah, that would have been really interesting. I know that there, there, there are sources for some of the things like that the authors were probably pulling from certain Norwegian fairy tales and myths and things of the time. So they see certain stories that are inspirations for Beowulf. So it's very possible that a monster like Grendel was a known entity to listeners and audiences prior to this. So they didn't need to give a backstory because we knew who this monster would have been. So, yeah. but yeah, so I saw a little bit of that, but, um, but no, I, I was like, it, it actually kind of really bugged me in the movie that they did that. But then again, I am the type of person who I love a good backstory on a villain. I love a good villain. Like it's a really complicated villain, but every once in a while I want the villain to be a monster. <laughs> I don't need yeah. sympathy for Dracula. I want Dracula to oh, be true. evil and to be a monster and do what yeah. he does. I don't need Dracula to be anything but the monster he is in Bram Stoker's novel. Kind of with Grendel here. Like, I just want Grendel to tear people up and get killed. <laughs> I don't need a backstory of, of making him compelling. He's a monster. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh. You're a monster. That's yeah. so sad. But the uh, the whole thing about Kane I found interesting anyway, because it was just the whole thing of like, you know, you're just going to go all the way back to the first the first murder, yeah. and this is how deep it runs. And I'm sure that by that time, people who were hearing the stories and heard the story of Cain and Abel, uh, they would have connected the evil, right, and, and stuff like that. So I think that was a, on the part of the person who added the Christian elements to this. That was a very, very smart, smart choice. Because, um, I mean, there's a lot of stories in the Bible, but even people who are not, even people who don't go deep into the Old Testament probably know Cain and Abel. And they know Cain mm-hmm. killed his brother. And they know I'm not, you know, I'm my brother's keeper, I think, is the line. And, and so the whole thing of that and knowing that the, the, the mark of Cain and all, like those things are pretty well known even outside of, even in popular culture for the longest time. I think they're kind of lost a little bit on today's generation, but we can get, to, we can talk about, you know, what's been lost over the years and another time. But um, yeah, so I think, I think that was a really good, uh, really good idea. And the motivation for the mother makes sense, right? Oh yeah. yeah 100%. Yeah. I mean, her son's arm was ripped mm-hmm. off, and then yeah. he walked away and died in the in the marsh. And I do know that dragons in mythology, medieval lore, had existed prior to this. So a dragon as a monster, as a character, was not unheard of. Yeah, and they always have a hoard yeah. of gold. Yeah, so- yeah. And shiny things. So actually, that's why I said. I, I think out of all of the parts of it, I think that was I've always enjoyed, loved the the dragon part. I, th- I think that was just the because to me though, it was what I saw in like cartoons and video games and stuff as a kid. You know the the or the you know the front of the D and D monster, the front of the D and D player manual and things like that. Even though I didn't really play it, but you know. That sort of thing. Um, so it's it's a very fami- even to me it was a familiar mythology aspect to it. So, all right, 
One second to see if they're, I think I, we, I actually think we hit them all. Um, so anything else you wanted to mention before I ask our next question or last question that is. How have you read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? No, and I keep meaning to because okay. I hear it's really good. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just wonder. I, I guess I need to read more um, of this time in order to compare. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm just baffled kind of like how, why has there been such a dramatic shift in the mm-hmm. language? from the epics that we and and would you consider this an epic is this an epic poem but i don't know is that just what's going on here is that just a lack of art has our intelligence weakened i mean what what do you think or am i just being like a total (laughs) snob and being like this was so because that stuff is like complex and so beautiful and this is you are so pretentious stella no um (laughs) so gowan and the green knight by the way 14th century so easily 400, maybe a little bit more years post Beowulf. By then you have, by then I think you're getting toward the high middle ages. You're, you're like there, there's things have developed and, and come up a lot more in, in, in a way from where they were here. I think, I think in this Viking era, especially the fifth and sixth century. And then as you get in toward when this was actually written, I think you are in what is called the dark ages. So the idea that this would not have been as rich and intelligent does kind of track. If one of the characteristics of an epic is to show a little bit of the history of a culture and its ideals, then yes, this is an epic. Cause that, because it also it's, it's an example story, so I think on that regard, this is an epic poem. But you're right; it's not as rich and literary and even influential as the classic Greek and Roman ones. So, but yeah, Gown of the Green Knight. Yeah, again, it's um, uh, unknown author, Middle English literative verse. Uh, and uh, but yes, it was. Um, but it was uh, circa the first page of the only surviving manuscript is circa the 14th century, according to Wikipedia. So um, I think you have a lot more culture developed between then. So. All right. So is this required reading? Oof. You know, I'm going to. Uh break every mold and honestly say no honestly i mean i recognize its place like if we i would talk about it in like a literature Mm -hmm. survey course and maybe show an excerpt um but golly i just don't i do not see the merit as much i think if you're studying medieval literature this is required reading um, or literature of the Middle Ages. I agree with you in that its historical importance outweighs its literary merit. Um, it's why I didn't, I don't teach it anymore because I don't need it for what I, my objectives are in the course that I teach. 
my colleagues down the hall teach it. They do a great job with it and they get some really good stuff out of it. So it's not required. I would recommend it still because I just enjoy it so much. And I think it would be required in certain contexts, though, specifically studying this the literature of this particular period of history. Like if you're going to study this particular sure, yeah. history and the literature, yes, then you have to read Beowulf. Um, but if you're just studying it, but if you're studying British literature, maybe an excerpt. If you're doing like a survey British literature course and yeah. you're starting at the beginning and moving your way forward, like maybe an excerpt or something, or like you said, an example or, or showing this in some way. And then showing how the, you know, things evolved from this, and you get into the Canterbury Tales, which is another thing I think you should only do excerpts from. But then you want to—I don't know—you kind of want to ease your way into the you know, the more the more interesting stuff and the more accessible stuff, anyway. So, all right. Well, sorry that I was a naysayer. Eh, I'm just—I'm. When it comes to epic poems, I'm just like really particular. Whoa. So that was that's just the bad thing about like loving the classics so much yeah. that I wonder if I didn't have that background if I would really love Beowulf, but it's just like it pales in comparison. So it's very hard to separate. And at least I like have admitted my biases. It's not like yeah, but, I think it's just I'm like, well, I'm just gonna constantly be comparing but, it. So But here's why. the thing. So this is why this is why I like having these conversations with you. Um you never come at something like this that you don't need, you know, like that you just, that you, for all the things you were just saying, but you never come at it and tell me or anybody who likes it that they're like wrong for their enjoyment of it, you know? Um, you, you're, I don't know. I just, I appreciate the fact that like, you know, we can have a differing opinion here and neither of us is just like, you know, you're, yeah. you're in, neither of us is calling each other names or trying to drag the other for like liking it or something like that. And I've always appreciated that when we have the differences that we have on, on works of literature and things. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as someone who believes that Batman and Robin is the best Batman <laughs> film, I have learned, you know, because I'm on the other side of that. So it's like, even though I may not think that Fifty Shades of Grey is like high mm. literature, I'm glad yeah. you're reading. Yeah. You know, oh, that yeah. sort you, of thing. Want, um, so it's that's it, shame, though, too, because you're basically yeah, shaming yeah. someone for liking something. And that's just not. The that's that's thing. what Twitter does, TikTok does, but it's just like don't yeah. do that. Yeah, if you want your smut to be Fifty Shades, your smut's Fifty Shades. It's cool. It is smut though. <laughs> um, smut is but, in now. I do have to say, especially with yeah, my, uh, yeah. I had a conversation about this with my friend the other day. It's like it's very interesting. Um, and then uh, yeah, it's uh, and it's also like. You know, there are certain books that you can look at somebody and say, I can't believe you like that. I don't want to be around with you anymore. And, you know, it's this isn't Mein Kampf. So let's I think we're good. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. this isn't something like really, really awful that is just like, you know, horrendously offensive and, and you know, whatever. So, OK, well, with that with that note, we don't have any um, feedback for this episode. So, that's sad. yeah, it'll be all right. Uh, so what are we reading for February? Yeah, I went back and forth on what I want to do. So it is February and obviously that's Valentine's Day. So I was trying to figure out what to do. And 
we have done some queer romances. Mm-hmm. And I was going to try to do, because I feel like, well, we did a lesbian one. Though I think one of the characters was bi. We did, yeah. And um... we've done Fun Home, too. Well, Seasons Greetings, wasn't it? Seasons of Love. Seasons of Love. Seasons of Love. I wanted to say Forever and Always. That's Seasons of Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We did, uh, yes, we did Fun Home, which was more of a queer uh, um, biography. We did, uh, what's it called? Yeah. Um, Call Me By Your Name. So, okay, we did have some men in there. So, yeah, sadly, though, we're not sadly, but we're I'm just adding another one to the woman loves woman pile. But this I would love to discuss this with you. Um, So we're doing what it was originally called was The Price of Mm -hmm. Salt. And it was published under the pseudonym Claire Morgan, who is actually Patricia Highsmith of uh, Talented Mr. Ripley fame. And it is sometimes called Carol. I seem to remember a movie with Kate Blanchett. Kate Bl- yes. Blanchett. Okay. Yeah. All right. All yep. right. All right. Yep. And okay. Rudy yes. Mara. Right. Yes. So we're going to read. So whether you find it on the Price of Salt or you find it on a Carol, 1952, mm-hmm. we're going to okay. talk about it. Cool. Come back for that. And Ooh. please let us know which one of us is right and whether or not you consider this episode to be a great betrayal on one part of one or the other Ooh, um wow uh and then if you believe gail uh gail <laughs> we are we are <laughs> it is 11 30 at night so we are it is we the latest late. we've yeah. well maybe not ever uh, but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but gail wolf yeah. hashtag gail wolf yes somebody somebody has written that <laughs> You know somebody has written probably that. probably really yeah. spicy episode ninety porn no <laughs> oh porn special. <laughs> yeah that would actually be interesting to talk about what place eroticism has in literature and whether we can judge it by the same standards as other yeah, literature. Yeah, we will not be reading the Marquis de Sade. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, <sighs> and back to us. <laughs> so, yes, come back. Uh, send us your, your, your email. Send us your notes. Leave us Facebook things. Um, and uh, on the we still actually have a Twitter account. Um, I'm on blue sky and, uh, and over on Insta. Uh, so drop us a line, let us know what you think. And until then, thank you very much for listening and take care. And let's see, what could I say? What could I say? Well, I think if you are honestly going to battle it out with somebody, um, that at least wear a pair of underwear, or at least a jock strap. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I really don't recommend swimming through water or marshy water with full battle gear on. Yeah. Although I guess that that does qualify Beowulf to be like a Navy SEAL or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's not – think about how – especially because he had, I think, a shield yeah. and a sword at the end. So that's 50 to 100 pounds, yeah. if not more. Uh, that's nuts. That's yeah. – that's yeah. men being stupid. <laughs> that's just men yeah, being men, you know. Good night. <laughs> Goodbye.
for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. 